feeling in touch with your religious side? Wanting to rid yourself of sin? It's your lucky day because God is a trans woman. Woman. Sasha Sidek. And Jesus is non-binary. Binary. Binary. Jacob Gamble. Join, Join us on Queering the Air every Sunday from 3 to 4 p.m. Queer and trans, arts, politics, pop culture, and everything in between. Only on Tracy R Community Radio. Come worship at the altar of your queerness desires. It lingers when we're done. You believe God is a woman. Hello, hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Queering the Air here on 3CR Radical Radio. We are back live in the studio. Well, Sasha's actually up at World Pride having the time of her life, so it's just me, um, Jacob, coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, um, just acknowledging that sovereignty was never ceded, a treaty has never been signed, uh, and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, but... As I said, I don't think I've been live in this studio for a little while, but I'm not alone. I'm joined by our lovely guest today. Um, his name's Lindsay. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jacob. I feel um, feel honoured to be able to come here today and share this time with you. Well, we're honoured to have you. And I know you actually just got off the plane this morning from World Pride, from from partying to politics right here in the studio. How about it? Yeah. Uh, both ends of the scale. Absolutely, yes. I did fly back in. Uh, this morning, um, it was a big week for me working, but then I got to celebrate a little bit yesterday at World Pride, which was nice. That's so great. Yeah. And, and what was the, the highlight of the trip for you? I think the highlight was actually just being in and around community and uh, the LGBTQA plus in, in particular, just the, the celebratory nature of, of what it was. I didn't know really what I was going in for or what I was expecting, but... I walked away just feeling really connected, really filled with joy, and I just got to have heaps of fun. So. Yeah. Oh, hell yes. yes. <laughs> I was looking um, online, and I was so envious of everyone up there. I was like, damn, I'm out here, hunched <laughs> over my laptop, like trying to get some uni work done, but... You know, the party's all happening there. Totally, it is. And, you know, uh, I think at the end of the day, we also need to remember that it's it's uh, sending an important message that, mm. you know, there's still uh, a fight to be had. You know, our rights are still there and need to be protected. And, um, yeah, the celebration is just one part of it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I think we'll start off... Um, I'll give you, our, our listeners, a little idea of, of just who you are and, and what you're here to talk about today. Now, those of you who tune in regularly might know we talk about a wide range of topics on the show, um, but I'm taking some inspiration uh, from my lovely co-host, Sasha Sidek, um, and also if any of you are fans of Joe Toscano on Radical Australia, where they do these big kind of sit-down interviews for an hour with someone talking all about their life um, and sort of you know the issues that they're passionate about. 
and things like that. So for those that don't know, Lindsay uh, is a youth worker. He works with an organization called The Man Cave, um, which runs workshops with young men and boys all about healthy masculinity um, and expressing emotional intelligence, I believe. But he's also had a very fascinating life story, which we will dive straight into. Um, so, Lindsay, how are you feeling? Oh, look, to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous. I haven't been on live radio before, um, but I'm really excited to, to be able to share my story and, and hopefully um, uh, any any listeners out there might resonate with some of it. Yeah, blessed be. Well, yeah. maybe let's let's start off. I know you were born in a small town yeah. in regional Victoria. Take us back. All right. So back, back, back again to 1989. I was born in a little tiny country town called Warrignerville in regional or rural Victoria. Uh, it's about halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide. 2,000 people and often I, I, we like to describe the size of towns based on whether they have a McDonald's um, <laughs> and it doesn't have a McDonald's. So it's small. There's like a tiny little street with a couple of closed stores, a couple of pubs, um, about five secondhand stores. So... You can imagine, like, there's uh, not a lot going on in a country town. And, and sport is probably, like, one really big thing that that, um, mm. that connects the community, um, which can be challenging for those that, that aren't into sport. I think I was sort of forced to be into sport as a young person there um, to fit in. Um, but it's interesting because I, I guess I didn't know any different. Um, but from around the age of five, I knew that I was a little bit different to some of the other boys. Mm. And it's just like this felt sense within me. I always liked, you know, I liked running around and having fun and being boisterous at times. You know, I liked Power Rangers and I liked, um, you know, to, to play with trucks and stuff. But I also liked to play with Barbies. You know, my trucks generally had a Barbie riding in them. Mm. And I remember vividly wanting a Barbie doll. Um, I must have been like three or four. And my dad didn't want that. He didn't allow that. And and I remember mum buying me one secretly. Um, and it was this water Barbie and I used to brush its hair and then, you know, play with it in the bath. But, yeah, from that age, about five, I knew I was a bit different. And I remember the the, the time I felt it was I had started playing Auskick, you know, Little Tackers football mm-hmm. AFL. And my dad was super excited because that was the sport that he played and loved. And I hated it. I hated it. Mm. I remember walking away from that experience just feeling like I'd let my dad down and feeling like he was disappointed in me. Mm. And it was around about that time, and as I've sort of touched on that, I was like, okay, there's something different about me here. So growing up, I was like a little bit chubby too. So I used to get teased about that. I used to get called stuffy. And although, you know, I put on a brave face and maybe led, lent into some of those um, masculine stereotypes of like, I've got, I've got it together, being stoic, like it doesn't affect me. It did affect me. It did affect me. And it was just one piece of like the puzzle of... Um, really struggling to be myself and struggling to uh, actually allow people in. Mm. So fast forward to about 12, 13, when I started high school. That was when I realised that that difference was that I was gay. 
and that was a real punch in the guts for me. I was terrified, to be honest. I was terrified. I was, first of all, terrified that uh, my friends would just completely reject me and that I would have none. I was terrified that my father, who... Although it wasn't outwardly homophobic, he would make comments here and there. Mm. Um, you know, maybe Will and Grace would come on the TV and he'd say something. Uh, or he'd see someone on the news that maybe was queer or LGBT and he'd say something. So I was terrified that he would reject me as well and kick me out. And, and you know, deep down, all I've really ever wanted is that love and acceptance from my father. And I was pretty certain that I wasn't going to have that if he knew. So around about that age is when I really started to suppress and repress um, mm. who I was. Any sort of femininity that I had, which was definitely there, definitely there, I shoved away. And it would come out just naturally because, you know, there'd be times when I would feel really comfortable and be myself and then someone would say something. Someone would say, oh, you're gay or you're femme or you're a girl or you're weak or all those sorts of terms that, again, really feeds into this, like, uh, way that masculinity is controlled, policed amongst young people. So I, yeah, I had girlfriends through high school. I... um hurt people along the way because I was really hurting mm. and around about the age of 15 is when I started uh, experiencing depression and it was pretty debilitating um, to the point where I would just uh, sort of go into my room after school and and I'd be in tears sort of numb um, and I didn't tell anyone I kept that a secret as well because I think deep down I knew that my depression and my feelings of sadness and uh, lack of self-worth and not feeling worthy or good enough was inherently connected to my sexuality. Mm. And if I ever revealed that, I felt like I would have to reveal my sexuality, which I was not ready to do. Mm. So it led to some pretty dark times, to be honest, some pretty dark times. Um, and, and the bullying was pretty bad as well, um, generally from older boys um, in my school. Uh, and again, like, I didn't really speak about that either because I felt like if I put a spotlight on the bullying, that that would put a spotlight on my sexuality. I was deeply, deeply um, scared of what being gay meant. And I didn't have role models around. I didn't have anyone really that I could look outward to, look up to. There weren't many TV shows. There was Will and Grace back in, in my day. This is, you know, going back 20 years ago, nearly. Um, so I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant to be gay. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of that experience for me in Woknabil. And it wasn't until I finished school and turned 18 that I left. Um, and I didn't leave straight away. It was actually a leadership camp that I went on after school that motivated me to leave. Again, I didn't ever think I would come out. Like, that was just not on my radar. It was something that I believed I would have to hide for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to when I moved to Melbourne. 
Yeah. And so did you have a chance to express any of this to anyone before you left the town? Great question. One person. There was mm. one girl, um, her name's oh, Kim. There's always a, a big shout out to all the straight girls. Shout yeah. out to the straight girls. The straight Thank allies. you for <laughs> making us feel comfortable being us, you know. Mm. And Kim was uh, someone that wasn't born in Warrantville. She came to the town later on, mm-hmm. uh, I think in year 10 or 11. So there was like, I felt a bit safer with her knowing that she didn't know everyone as deeply as I had. Like all of us in my year had known each other just about from birth. Like mm. there's only, there's two primary schools and there's one high school. So we spend a lot of our time with each other. Um, but Kim, yeah, I felt safe. And for me, that safety was to say I was bisexual. That was my sort of stepping stone. Um, some people that's their end journey, but for me, that was a stepping stone. Um, yeah, it's interesting actually reflecting on that. I haven't thought about that for a while, but big shout out to you, Kim. Thank you for <laughs> allowing me to, to open up to you. Yeah, thank you, Kim, Queen. This story resonates so much with me because I actually was the same. I came out as bisexual to my best friend who also happened to be like a cis girl, um, Kate. Shout out to Kate. Shout out to Kate. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was like, oh, I don't know what I am, but I definitely like... Men, <laughs> so, and we're in we're in my Mitsubishi Mirage, like 1998, this rundown car, like driving along this road, and I just remember feeling so scared. And she was like, "No, it's fine. Like, don't worry, you mm. know." It's yeah, okay. I think Kim for me was just a bit curious, mm. which was which was kind of nice, you know, that it wasn't just sort of put out there and left. Yeah, she was a bit curious about my experience and and what mm. had happened and. Yeah, because I'd started exploring prior to that. I'd started exploring mm. from about 15. And again, like, my whole life was very secret. Um, these were guys that I'd been chatting to online. Um, I'd kind of, I'd come to Melbourne for a family holiday or like we'd come for a uni open day, I think even, and I'd snuck out and like mm. met up with people. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting thinking about that now and thinking about, because I work with young people, about, yeah, how much danger maybe I put myself in, in not ever feeling, you know, safe and comfortable in my world, going and searching for it anyway, you mm. know, going and searching for that experience to understand what my sexuality was. And were they typically older men as well? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely older. And I probably lied about my age. Um, yeah, I absolutely would have back mm. then. Yeah. My God, this is such a, a classic um, country gay story, yeah. I feel. But tell me, so you left your hometown. You know, perhaps you're hiding a lot of yourself. Your relationships with some family maybe are a little bit fractured. Mm. Um what was it like then coming to Melbourne? I mean, what happened next? Yeah, so I didn't move to Melbourne straight after school. As I mm. said, it sort of took me about six months to, I guess, build up the courage and the right thing sort of um, happening. And, yeah, moved to Melbourne. And do you know what's really funny is, like, it was so present for me. It was, like, right there, right just beneath the surface, my mm. sexuality. So I was... Going out and exploring, and I, I remember going to one of these old gay bars. It was called the Exchange Hotel. It used to be um, really popular. Shout out the Exchange Hotel. 
popular pub on Commercial Road, back mm-hmm. when Commercial Road was, was sort of the gay hub um, of Melbourne. And I had a belly full of alcohol to build up the courage to go in. And I, I was there by myself. Um, and I randomly met again a, a, a cis woman who was just beautiful mm-hmm. and uh, a straight woman. And she just made me feel super comfortable. Um, I gave her a fake name though. That's how deeply in the closet I was. Mm-hmm. My, my name then was Jackie. Jack. Shout out to probably Will and Grace at this point. I think the name <laughs> definitely came from that. But, um, yeah, introduced myself as Jack and she was just so lovely and, um, caring and kind and, and, and celebrated me that I was like, wow, okay. Maybe I could do this. And then that night I remember she introduced me to her, to her two housemates and they'd all just moved recently from Tasmania. So they were mm. relatively new to the city, mm-hmm. much like myself. And we swapped numbers. We had a fun night together and I started hanging out with them, um, outside of that, that pub. Uh, we started going for coffee and again, I was still like deeply in the closet and my, my name obviously wasn't real. And so a couple of weeks in, I had to face the reality of being a bit more honest with them than myself. And I shared that I'd given them a fake name and I shared that I was pretty deeply in the closet and couldn't really imagine coming out. And they were just so understanding, Mm. you know, so understanding. And I needed that in that moment because I hadn't ever had someone really understand me before. No one really knew what was going on um, for me. Yeah, it actually brings up a bit of emotion talking about it. Um, Mm. Because I felt like for the first time I could truly be myself. Yeah, and so this is about three months after I moved to Melbourne and three weeks after I met them, I came out. It happened so quickly. I just... I just knew because I had people in my corner. Mm. I had people that would be there for me if my family rejected me. If my friends from home rejected me, I knew that I'd have people. Mm-hmm. And it was the biggest relief I had ever experienced in my life up until that point. Mm. I felt fully free from these chains of oppression, fully free of these chains of hiding my unique and beautiful self and I could finally be that and from that point forward it was like all this internalized repressed femininity just came blasting out and I went through a phase of wearing makeup (laughs) and I was wearing girls clothes and I was um yeah Yes, um, some questionable looks, I must say, back then. <laughs> some Supray jeans and... Oh, know, we all went through a Supray moment. <laughs> but, um, you know, I needed it. I mm. needed to let it out. And, yeah, maybe I guess I'll talk about how that looked, telling my family. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, how did they respond? Yeah. So my mum came to Melbourne for seminar or something, and I... I remember taking her out for dinner and I was shaking. I was shit scared, to be honest. Like, I didn't, I just, I, I knew in my heart that she would be fine, but 
but I just didn't know how she would react. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it makes me think about being a young queer person. I feel like I was hyper vigilant to the way people reacted to things because, um, yeah, I was, I guess I was always worried about how I was being perceived, whether I was being perceived as feminine or gay or or whatnot. Mm. So I was so hyper um, worried about what and how she was going to react. And she was amazing. We we both cried and she cried and she's like, how long have you known? And I'm like, I've known for a long time. Um, I just was too scared to say and I didn't really know how to do it. And I remember asking her like, mum, did you know? And she said no. And I was, I was shocked by that. Mm. Um, I thought, surely, mum, you know, I had lots of little, you know, lots of little feminine characteristics. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anyone's a gay person or a queer person, but mm-hmm. I think it, in my mind at that time, I was like, surely, mum, you know, but I remember what she said to me and she's like, you know, Lynn's, you were just my son. I didn't think. Um, anything further than that, I just love you for who you are. And that was, yeah, I guess obviously meant something because it still sits with me now. Mm. And so being a small town mum, um, decided that, uh, well, she sort of asked me if I was going to tell everyone else. And I said, yes. And she said, I I think we need to tell them pretty quickly because being a small town word can get around. Mm. Um, and I think I was a little bit in shock at that time and I felt like that might have been the easier option for mum to go and tell everyone. And I sort of reflect back now and wish I had have had a bit more confidence to say, actually, no, I need, you know, that time to do it myself. Mm-hmm. But no, mum went and told my family and I had lots of positive messages from my nan and my, my aunties and that, which oh. was really nice. Yeah. Um, and my dad was a different story. Um, so him and my mum had broken up when I was 15, um, which for me was, uh, a happy time. I knew that their relationship wasn't, um, going well, uh, and I just felt like they would be better separated. And I also really struggled with my dad. I struggled in my relationship with my dad. Um, so I enjoyed then being able to just live with mum and have mum to me mm. in a way um and my sister what was sort of your i guess connection with your dad if anything after he left mm. very quickly it dissipated uh so my dad his sort of experience was he retired early um, mm. when my sister was born she's seven years younger than me and he started to pull away from the family from about when I was 12, we started going on family holidays without him. He, although was retired, spent um, a lot of his weekends playing lawn bowls and golf and sort of put that as a priority over his family, mm. um, which I, I struggled to understand. Uh, and he also became quite a grumpy person. Um, the further away from working, um, as time went on, he became more distant, more um, short-tempered, and I didn't feel present in our lives. Mm. So it kind of just naturally fizzled out, my dad and, and my relationship, when when mum and dad went their separate ways. And like 
being a small town, they lived a block away from one another. Um, but I spent a lot less time with him and that got less and less and less as time went on. Mm. Yeah. And so now that you've sort of revealed yourself to your mom, was it her that told him? It was, yeah. She, she told dad and I then heard from him 3am one morning. Um, I was working late nights at that time in a nightclub, so I was actually on my way home. Mm. Again, I remember this vividly because I was working on Brunswick Street. It's kind of funny. And I was driving home and I was driving past the Peel when he called. <laughs> <laughs> and I pulled over outside the Peel. Oh, my God. And my dad's response was, so your mum's told me about what's going on and... You know, I just don't think you should rush into a decision like this. I'm like, okay. It's like, you know, it could be a phase. Like, how do you know? How do you know? I don't, I just don't think you should go around telling everyone. Um, and I said, Dad, this isn't a phase. This is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I just haven't had the courage to tell you. Mm-hmm. And he was a bit drunk. Um, obviously, he needed some courage to have that conversation, and that's how he found it. Mm. Um, but the conversation didn't really go anywhere, um, and we didn't talk much after that. We didn't talk much after that. We actually didn't talk about my sexuality again for 10 years. Wow. 10 years. And there were periods in that 10 years where we didn't talk at all. Mm. Uh, one of those periods was three years. My gosh. And not to, you know, criticize your father or anything, because mm-hmm. you, you just never know what's going on with, with some people. But how do you think that kind of reflects um, the, this, the representation of masculinity that you had growing up? Yeah, totally. You know, I think I've, I've spent a lot of work, um, spent a lot of time working on myself in this, in this, area my relationship with my dad mm. um because i've been so sensitive to how he is and he's a bit older so he's 73 now mm. um him and mum were 14 years apart and so he was sort of that little bit older generation and i really understand that when he grew up there was no lgbt people around mm. um and if so there were you know they were maybe on a movie getting killed you know yeah. what i mean um so the representation was really poor, negative, and obviously living in the country is also like going back a bit further. Like the country's maybe 10 years behind the progression of a city. Mm. So his understanding of masculinity was to be stoic, was to be strong, was to play sport, and you know, that's how you connect with your mates and laugh and drink beer at the pub. And he wasn't ever given the tools or the awareness or understanding of what it means to be a wide-ranging human being Mm. and a man that can care and love and support the people around them, a man that can love his gay son and celebrate him. So I know that he also doesn't have anyone around him that influences him in that way and and not having my mum there after I'd come out, probably limited him from even remotely having someone or having any space to learn. 
mm. or understand um, about sexuality, about difference, about the vast array of human emotions, you know. Emotions was not something that he expressed other than anger. Mm. And this um, this image of masculinity has definitely been, as you said, something you've been in a space working on for a while, which mm. we'll um, touch on later. But I think we'll take a breather for now. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're on Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. We're having a little chat with Lindsay um, all about his life. Uh, we'll jump to a song now and we'll be right back in a few minutes. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, Jake.
tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast. 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strengths and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. Coming to 3CR on the 13th of March is Rainbows Don't Fade with Age. Rainbows Don't Fade with Age, presented by VELS LGBTI Aging and Age Care, sharing stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI plus people. Rainbows Don't Fade with Age on Mondays at 2pm every fortnight on 3CR. Welcome back to Queen the Air here on 3CR uh, Community Radio. If you're just joining us, we've been having a lovely sit-down chat um, with Lindsay, who is a youth worker, among many other things. Um, and we've just been talking about his upbringing um, in a small regional town, which I can never pronounce the name. Warwick Nabil. Warwick Nabil. Beautiful. Um, talking about sort of uh, his relationship with family and the experience of coming out in quite a hostile community. Um, yeah, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I, I obviously just feel really comfortable chatting to you. Like we're mm. friends outside of outside of this interview. And just how quickly the time has gone. I know. <laughs> time flies when you have a good storyteller, which is what <laughs> you, you are. But I think in the chronology of your life, we're at, I'm assuming, sort of the late teens, mm. early 20s. Yep. And I know kind of during your 20s, you entered um, a bit of a dark period, mm. um, some issues around mental health and addiction. So... Yeah, tell us a bit about where that all began and how was that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing, I guess, that came out of having to hide myself for such a long time and, and suppress who I was, was some unhealed wounds. So coming out was, although such a beautiful and freeing experience, uh, that feeling of not feeling worthy and not feeling good enough was still there. My mm-hmm. coping mechanisms that I built over my childhood, my teenage years were strong. And those beliefs that I guess I believed, which is what, that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't good enough, that mm-hmm. I sh- didn't deserve to be celebrated, were still very present. So from about the age of 20, I started experimenting with drugs um, in the party scene but that pretty quickly uh, took a turn into addiction 
So it wasn't just partying. It was outside of the party. Mm. I started using drugs as a tool to be motivated, a tool to be creative, a tool to escape, escape those dark feelings. And that depression that sort of came about in my life from from 15 um, was still very much present, was still very much present. And although I would have good days, um, I also had some really dark days. And I turned to drugs on those dark days to escape. In particular, ice was uh, a drug that I became very attached to um, and very quickly at, at the age of 20, 21. Within about three months of the first time I'd used ice, I was using every day. Mm. And I was managing a restaurant at that time and I was partying a lot and I was also DJing at that time. I was quite passionate about music. And so I was trying to balance all these things and very much using ice as a tool to uh, be awake a lot and be, uh, I guess, stimulated, but also as a way to escape, as I said, from those dark feelings. So that was the first time I had a bit of a mental breakdown was about 21. Mm. Uh, and I moved, I ended up moving home. I told my mum about the experience that I was hap- was happening with me in ice, and she was obviously horrified, terrified, so unsure of what to do. And together we decided that moving home would be the the best course of action. Mm-hmm. I also had no understanding of mental health, really. I didn't. I I wouldn't have even said that I had depression back in that time, mm. uh, and I definitely didn't know that the drug use was me escaping. I just thought it was a drug that was addictive and I'd gotten addicted. Mm. So not not much of an understanding of kind of why you were addicted to it? No, not at all. Mm. And very much didn't know how to manage my mental health. Mm. The only thing that I knew back then was to take antidepressants. Mm -hmm. That was the message I'd received in, in school. That was the message I'd received in, I guess, society at that time. Um, and so, yeah, moved home and I, I went to a psychologist for a little bit there, but I, uh, I guess I found it challenging being in the country. I sort of knew this person Mm. and I don't know if I was really ready to talk and talk about it, talk about the hard stuff that had been happening and happened in my life. So essentially I just ran away from the problem. Moving back home took me away from the drug and access to the drug but it didn't actually get to the root cause. Uh, so, you know, I spent a bit of time off it, but I found it. I found it out in the country mm. and it came back into my life there. And I've then very much incorporated it into my life in the country secretly with some people around me. Um, all like, you know, I can look back now and know that we're all sort of escaping together. Mm. And I lived in the country for three years, and it was a really tough three years, to be honest. It was probably the darkest time of my life, where I just felt so worthless and hopeless. And um, I think moving back to the country actually took away all my autonomy. It took away my freedom of expression, um, and I was back in a space that wasn't safe for me as a kid. Mm. But I didn't know how to get back. I didn't know how to sort myself out, how to understand what was going on, how to... Um, I guess work towards feeling more self-worth. So three years there of a really tough time um, until I finally 
uh, got sober for a little bit and got the courage to just go, I'm moving back to Melbourne. I need to for my sanity. Yeah. And I'm, I moved back to Melbourne. Um, at 24, which was amazing and again, very freeing and I felt like I could finally lean into being myself again. Um, in some way, shape or form, I think I really didn't know who that was. Uh, I think, yeah, most of my twenties were spent not really knowing who that was, but it then crept into my life yet again because mm-hmm. I get, I hadn't digged deeper to really understand what it was I was escaping from. Mm-hmm. So it came back harder and faster. And I was working a job that um, took a lot of time and effort, and I used it as a tool for that. I was involved in, yeah, making money in other ways to fund my addiction. It got that bad. It was nearly two years of everyday use. And I was spending um, nearly a 1000 bucks a week on it. Mm -hmm. And walk us through just... As someone who has kind of an understanding of drugs, but mm-hmm. not at the same nuance that you would, what's kind of the appeal here? I mean, what's Lindsay without ice versus mm-hmm. Lindsay with ice uh, in that time of your life? Lindsay without ice was a mess, like bedridden, um, depressed, no energy, no motivation, worthless, couldn't function. Mm. And I really felt like I needed the drug to survive. I really did. And it became my whole life. Like, my week would consist of working, going to my dealer, working, going to my dealer. Like, it was just everything. And I didn't know if I would ever stop. I didn't. And it wasn't until I... Got caught by the cops one night on my way home from work with a car full of drugs and got taken to the police station, strip search, squat, cough, mm. made to feel like a worthless piece of shit. Mm. That was my sliding doors moment where I guess I had to look within and go, what is really going on here? And I'm very fortunate that I bumped into a friend after that experience um, her name's Frankie and I'm so forever eternally grateful for her support. She was a lawyer and I told her what had happened. I, I hadn't told anyone. Again, like there's a common story here of secrecy and mm. there was lots of shame in my life and shame breeds on secrecy and flourishes on secrecy. So I told her and she just gave me the right advice. She's like, you need to look within and ask yourself, what are you really escaping from? Mm. Um, find some places where you can go and do this, whether it be a rehab or a psych or, um, you need to do the research though, because it's going to motivate you to do it, to mm. want to do it. I could just go and do it for you and give it to you. But if you have the autonomy to do it, that will benefit you more. And I did. Mm. And I fully immersed myself in recovery. I went to uh, Thorn Harbor Health. They have a program there called Rewired, um, which I found really, really beneficial because for the first time, it's it's group therapy, by the way, um, for men who use ice mm-hmm. or gay men who use ice. And for the first time, I saw other people like me, other people working full-time jobs and having this secret addiction because um, I didn't ever... 
understand, like, I had this idea of a drug user and especially someone who used every day that was potentially someone on the street. But I was like, I'm not that guy, so who am I? Mm. And these people in this program made me see that I was like other people. And I started seeing a psychologist and I started going to Narcotics Anonymous and I went to a detox clinic for a week. And fortunately, all those things were uh, uh, things I didn't have to pay for because that was also something I was terrified of, like mm. feeling like I'd have to ask my parents for help, but I was too ashamed to tell them that I was back in that position. And so that was at 27. And that changed my life, to be honest. Mm. I've spent... The, you know, that since that time, just growing and expanding and evolving and asking myself really hard questions and pushing myself in ways I never thought I could and really starting to build a relationship with myself mm. and my beautiful little inner child, little Linz, who, yeah, he's just coming up now and I'm just feeling really proud of, of him. Um, because he didn't feel safe in this world and I had to I've had to I've had to really let him know that he is mm. and that I'll protect him as big adult lens. Yeah. And what a wonderful job you've been you've been doing and um honestly like what a story. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that with us. We do only have about ten minutes left, so I think would love to pivot now to where you are today, um, and I also think it's really important that we touch on some of the work you're doing uh, with the man cave because I feel like it sort of ties everything else in Absolutely. about this kind of um, relationship you had with masculinity mm. and also society's relationship with with masculinity. Mm. So, yeah, tell totally. us. Yeah, so in that process, it, and it sort of feeds well into this next part of my life. Mm. Through that process. I realized that social work was something that I had wanted to do for a long time or the helping profession, but never been in a space to do it. And once I started working on myself and, and started to grow and love myself, I realized that that passion is still there. So I started studying social work mm. um, at 29, which was scary as all hell, thinking I'm a mature age student and I'm going to have no money for four years while I'm while I'm studying. Um, but it was the best thing I could have ever done. And But what I realized in social work is so much of social work is working in crisis intervention mm. um, with people that have been dealt uh, a tough hand in life and now we're putting Band-Aids on their problems that I believe can be fixed with prevention. Mm. And so, yeah, along that journey, I'm like, oh, there has to be a thing, there has to be one thing, there has to be one problem in society that like creates all the others and i don't know if this is true but i feel like it is to do with masculinity mm -hmm. i feel like it is to do with this patriarchal society where men have a lot of power but i don't actually believe that there's they're men with power i think they're just little boys with lots of power that mm -hmm. haven't actually developed and grown in men's bodies of course you know we can see that in some of our political leaders we can see that in Political leaders all around the world, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I decided that that's where I want to put my time and attention, into working in with men in masculinities. And along that way, along the journey, I was talking to a friend and, and she told me about this organization called The Man Cave. 
sounded very up my alley. They work with young people in schools, and fortunately, I got a job there. Uh, it took me a little while. It took me about six months from sort of reaching out, but oh, it just warms my heart what we get to do. We go into schools and we run a full-day workshop with, with boys, with gender-diverse teens, um, if they feel comfortable stepping into our space, Man Cave. We very much... Uh, promote it and create a safe and welcoming space for for any young person Um, but what we're really doing is having a conversation about emotions about masculinity about their stories those boys stories because often they don't get a chance to share what's really going on and so we take them on a bit of a rites of passage which is about taking a young person away from their general environment. Although we're still in school, we we take them away from that. We step them into some games and fun and connect with them as sort of like healthy role models. And then we start to step them down into authenticity and vulnerability. We ask them questions about their life. We we ask broad group questions and try and universalize experiences so that these boys realize that they're not going through something alone. Hmm. And it might be, you know, something like the loss of a grandparent where lots of teenagers will experience but often not talk about, not talk about how much that grandparent meant to them, not talk about how much the loss of a grandparent actually really hurt them. And that connection point starts to bring the boys together. And then throughout the day, the middle part is where we get really real, where we start to share about what is really going on with you boys, with us. We share first. We share about where we're at, Mm -hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we give them a chance to share where they're at. And it's just pretty incredible what happens when you give young people a space to really talk and a space where they're listened to heard and celebrated for whatever comes up the Mm. tears the joy all of it and then we start to bring them out and we celebrate each other um for having the tough conversation for leaning into emotion uh for challenging and questioning these male and masculine stereotypes that we've just been handed down from generation mm-hmm. and these stereotypes that don't actually serve us anymore. You know, once upon a time, and still some some tribes in Africa do this, they have their own rites of passage where it might be training a young person up to fight a lion because that's some of the challenges that, that those people in their society have to face. You know, they're living on the savannah. They're going to face a lion one day. That's what the young people have to face. Our young people don't have to face that, but what they do have to face is the biggest killer of young boys is themselves, Mm. is suicide. So we're equipping these boys with the tools through a rites of passage for what they need in today's society, which is an ability to understand their own emotions, an ability to be able to talk about them and also let them know that we all have them and it's okay and if anything, for us at our organisation, it's celebrated to talk about it mm. and open up. What's been some of the the highlights uh, for you? You know, I can't go past some of the young queer people that I've had the joy of working with where they've felt comfortable to talk about their experience. They've felt comfortable to talk about the challenges of being queer and how... Sometimes life's really tough for them because other boys are giving them a hard time. 
And the space that we create creates this space of non-judgment and um, understanding so that those other boys that maybe are giving these young queer kids a hard time get to see the impact, get to see the impact of maybe they're teasing or they're, they're bullying and realise that it's having an impact, realise that it is hurting. So I think when a young queer person has like stepped into their power, um, they're some of my favourite days. Obviously, I have a vested interest in that and a personal experience. Yeah. Um, one workshop in particular I'll never forget uh, where a boy came up to me at the end of the workshop. And although this wasn't as part of it in a group, but he came up. He was a year 12 boy and he said, hey... Um, I just really resonated with the story that you told throughout the day because we share our own stories. Uh, and he's like, it's and because I'm gay and I haven't actually told anyone. And that was just like a heart-opening moment for me where yeah. that young person felt safe enough to open up. You know, I didn't have that. And especially not in a in a gay person, um, and I was able to just hold him in that and um, let him know that it's okay and he can decide what comes next however he wants to, in whatever process, in whatever time time frame, and just celebrate him too for the courage it took to do that. Mm. So they're, they're some of my favourite moments um, and I think just connecting boys to each other. You know, Absolutely. when they start hugging each other, when they start passing around the tissues, when they start patting their mates on the back, they're the beautiful moments. Mm. Yeah. And it must be such a full circle moment for you as well after having such a negative experience in high school with, you know, men and, and masculinity um, to witness all of this. Totally, totally. You know, little Linz is getting healed along the way. Mm. He really is. And it definitely wasn't easy walking into that school environment for the first time after 10, 15 years, but it brings me so much joy and um, fulfillment and love now that I get to Mm. stand up there with courage. What are your hopes for the future of men and masculinity today? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I really just hope that the future of men are men that are emotionally aware, um, not afraid to cry and let some of those challenging emotions of fear and sadness and grief be expressed, for them to celebrate one another for mm. that as well. Um, but society has to come along as well. You know, it's not just men that are policing some unhealthy forms of masculinity. It's It can be all of us at times. Mm. So I think a greater awareness of that. Um, but really, just a world where we don't have to sit up here and talk about suicide statistics in young men. Mm. A world where we don't have to continually have royal commissions into domestic violence because they're all coming from the, those men bottling these things up. And we often talk about it in our workshops of like our emotions or our well-being like a glass jar where when things happen, we bottle them up and if they don't come out, it breaks and that can look like, you know, um, depression, anxiety, suicide, domestic violence. Mm. So a world where men are just more in touch with that and not afraid to love one another in a completely 
um, healthy and celebratory way. Mm -hmm. And how about in your world, Lindsay? How have you sort of reconnected um, with family and yourself in this time in your life? Yeah, actually, I've had some big um, movements in my space with my dad and, and, and I guess my mum I've always been pretty real with, but my dad just recently, I've started to be a lot more grounded and centred around him and not let his energy um, get me down. Uh, and it's really benefited our relationship. I'm feeling much more comfortable just sharing things with him, however he reacts, uh, that's his stuff to to deal with. If I can be grounded and centred then that's powerful. And, yeah, he's actually sent me a message not too long ago saying how proud of me he was mm-hmm. and how calm and collected I appear and that whatever mm-hmm. I'm doing in life seems to be serving me well. So things are looking up and it's a long journey and there's still a way to go. But, um, yeah, I love my dad and I want um, to continue building a relationship with him. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much uh, for coming in and sharing all of the highs and lows of your life. Um, it's been yeah, a real pleasure. And I think people will re- really respect um, and value all of the work you're doing as well. Thanks so much, Jacob. It's been a joy to come and share. And I um, yeah, love being able to share my story for those that are interested in listening. And thank you all um, for listening to the show today. Uh, you're on Queering the Air on 3CR. Stay tuned uh, for Salam Radio Show. Coming up next, sounds from the Middle East, um, Central Asia today, to be specific. But happy World Pride, everyone. Happy World Pride. Happy World Pride. Uh, and we'll see you all next week.